recently, well, when I say recently, you know, I can be talking up to a year ago, and I think it was just about a year ago that I was doing a retreat up in Washington when they opened it up to questions. And one of the women uh, raised her hand and she said, what do you do when the Lord just doesn't answer your prayers? You've been praying and praying, and it seems like God is not working. Nothing's changing. Everything seems to even be getting worse and harder. What do you do? And I listened to some of the other women as they grappled with this answer and how to answer this woman. And then they looked at me. And I said, this is what you need to know, that even when you can't see it, even when you see no evidence at all, God is at work. He is working something amazing, something extreme. Because our God works in an unseen realm where we can't see. He works in the spiritual realm with principalities and invisible powers that we can't see. He works in unseen ways. This is the God who works in the wind, and you can't see the wind, but you can feel the effects. This is the God that works in unexpected ways, things that you would never consider. He's the God who works in things beyond our eyesight and knowledge and reach. He works in all time and at all times. He works in the heavens and the stars and the universe, but he also works in the microcosm with the cells and with the amoeba and with microchondria and other um, intestinally small ingredients. This is our God. And he is working in the best of ways to bring about his great plan. I encourage this woman to pray to continue to pray because God uses prayer to align us with his will and his ways. God uses prayers to open up our ears to his voice and our eyes to his working. So we need to pray in order to enter into God's plans. So God is always working. It's important to know that God is never inactive. In your life right now, God is working. He is always working to fulfill his word and his promises. In our text and in the Bible, we see that God promised a man that he would be a people. And then God promised these people that they would be a nation. And God promised this nation that they would have a king. And God promised this king that he would have a dynasty. And God promised this dynasty that they would have a Messiah. And God promised the world that they would have a savior through this promised dynasty. When Israel became so corrupted and so defiled that they were on the verge of self-destruction, that they were jeopardizing the promises of God, God stepped in to preserve the godly line, to preserve the lineage of David that he might bring forth a savior to the world. God was working in the darkness of those times, even those sinful times, and the consequent exile and punishment of the sins of these people to bring about his great plan. I love the way F.B. Meyer, a 19th century pastor, put it. He was uh, living in England at the time of Spurgeon. This is what he wrote. How different is God's method from man's? The creature works from day to night. His best is first. But darkness overshadows his fairest hopes and best concerted schemes. The creator's days begin with the preceding eve. He reckons the evenings and nights into the days. Because out of them the day is born. They usher in the light 
and recreate body and brain for the busy hours that follow. Art thou disappointed in Christian work? Remember that God wrought on through long, dark ages, ere his schemes were evolved in order and beauty. Human schemes begin with blare of trumpet, roll of drum, but are soon plunged into darkness. The heavenly seed is sown in autumn shadows. The foundation stone of redemption was laid amid the gloom of Calvary. The work that lasts generally begins amid disappointment, difficulty, and heartbreak, but inevitably passes into the day. Art thou passing through the bitterness of soul trouble? For weeks has there seemed to be no ray of comfort, no sign of deliverance, yet every dark hour is hastening toward the dawn. Thou shalt see thy beloved walking towards thee in the morning light. Art thou in despair for the world? The times are dark and threaten to get darker. But if the first creation began in the dark, can it be wondered at that the second must begin there too? But as one emerged in daylight, so shall the other. The morning cometh. See the star of day standing sentry. Time is bearing us to a day that shall never go down to night, but shall mount ever towards its meridian. F.B. Meyer noted the truth that God works from darkness to light. Men start with the morning light and they work until it's dark and then they go to sleep. But God works in the darkness to bring about the light. It was the first darkness when darkness was upon the earth that God began his greatest work of creation and said, let there be light. All the time, though, that there was darkness, God was at work to bring about the beauty of creation, the beauty of the day, the beauty of his light. How desperate and dark the times must have seemed for the descendants of David. They had been brought back to Israel on the promises of God, led by Zerubbabel. Everyone knew that Zerubbabel was the son of David. But he's the last son of David to be publicly acknowledged as a leader. And Zerubbabel had no throne to sit on. His descendants went into obscurity. Outwardly, it seemed, no doubt, to the people of Israel, like the promises of God were rife with impossibilities. During the time of Ahiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eliud, Eliezer, Mathan, and Jacob, these men that you read about in the lineage of David, there were threats, upheavals, oppression, persecution, and wars. Four centuries had elapsed from Zerubbabel to Joseph with no prophetic word no further promises from God. It seemed like the seed in the ground, the lineage of David, had to wait while God worked. We'll read um, in our study, we read in our study this week about how David was the root of Jesse. A root is underground. Dirt covers it, and you can't see anything at work. But God is working the seed is planted, and the energy in that seed is sprouting. The, the shoot is pushing against the hard ground until finally it is manifested in the light of day. I want to just quickly 
give you a short history of what was happening to the lineage of David or during the time that the lineage was in obscurity in Nazareth to give you an understanding of why this lineage was in hiding or why God was covering or shrouding this lineage, protecting them all the time until he was ready to bring his son, the branch of righteousness, the root of Jesse, the seed of David, the Messiah into the light. You have after the Babylonian empire, you have the takeover uh, by Cyrus and the Medes and Persia. I love this takeover because not one human life was lost during this takeover. As it was reported, the Jews went to bed in Babylonia with Belshazzar as their ruler and woke up with Cyrus, or as he's called Darius, the royal one, that was a title, as their king and sovereign over them without any bloodshed, without any outcry. The Medes ruled for years until they were overtaken by Alexander the Great. But Alexander the Great's rule was short-lived. He ruled only from 331 to 320 and died. It said that he wept on a mountaintop because there was no more of the world to conquer. He had conquered all of the known world. Alexander then passed down his rulership to four of his main generals. His generals, Lysimachus, took over Asia Minor and Thrace, Cassander, Macedonia, and Greece. But then there was Ptolemy, and he took over Egypt and Palestine, or the area of Israel. But there was another general, Seleucus, who took over Syria, Babylon, Persia, and India. These two men, Ptolemy and Seleucus, were to have many battles over the land of Palestine. It would always be held in upheaval because of the powers of these two kingdoms. Ptolemy created a people known as the Ptolemies. Uh, Seleucus created a people known as the Seleucids, who were the Syrians. And again, they fought these battles back and forth, contesting who had propriety and ownership over Israel. Now, the Ptolemies, or the Egyptian rule, tended to be more gracious. They wanted to Hellenize everybody. They wanted everyone to become Greeks. They taught the Greek language to everybody. But they were tolerant of Judaism and the Hebrews' belief. In fact, they even had the Hebrew scriptures translated into the Greek language and this work started about 285 BC in Alexandria, Egypt, and ended in 100 BC. So they were tolerant of Judaism and the, the Hebrew religion. However, the Seleucids were ruthless, and they were not tolerant at all of Judaism. They were always extracting vengeance on Israel. They were forcing Hellenization on the people. They were forcing the Israelites to learn the Greek language, to tolerate the Greek games, which the Israelites, uh, especially the religious ones, thought of as an abomination because all of the uh, participants in the Greek games were naked and received the adoration of the pagan gods of Greece. They forced the Israelites to accept the pagan gods. They set up idols to these pagan gods all over Jerusalem and Israel. 
And they had a great persecution against anyone who held to the Hebrew scriptures, who translated the Hebrew scriptures, who taught the Hebrew scriptures. They murdered those who held on tightly to Judaism. There was one ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who even desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the holy altar of God that was in the temple courtyard. He then outlawed the holy scriptures and imposed exorbitant taxes to pay for his oppressive regime that held sway over Israel. This led to an uprising in Israel by a family of priests known as the Maccabees. No doubt you've heard of the Maccabees. They're what Hanukkah is all about because they took the temple that had been desecrated by um, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabees cleansed the temple. They uh, sprinkled it with the holy uh, blood of a heifer. They um, lit the candles. They held holy feasts. They also began a revolt and guerrilla warfare against the Seleucids. They took possession of Israel for a time and they defeated the Seleucids, but later began to compromise with the Seleucids so they could maintain the rulership over Israel. At this time, it became what is known as the Hasmonean dynasty. Because when one of the Maccabeus, Judas Aristobulus, became the priest, and let me say this really quickly, none of the Maccabees should have been priests. They could be lesser priests, but they couldn't be high priests because they were not of the line of Aaron. They were of a lesser line of Levites, but they usurped the role of high priest, um, making deals with the Seleucids and then later making uh, financial deals with Rome so they could maintain the priesthood in Israel. At the same time, Judas Aristobulus proclaimed himself not only as priest, but as king. About this time, a sect, a religious sect in Israel began to arise called the Pharisees. You know about the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees were outraged that a priest would claim to be the king of Israel because they held very strictly to the word of God. And the word of God stated that a priest would not be king, but a king would become a priest and he would be of the lineage of David. So at this time, things became very dangerous for anyone in the lineage of David. It was dangerous during the time that the Seleucids or Antiochus Epiphanes was ruling because again, he wanted to wipe out the promises of God and the Holy Scriptures. It was also dangerous during the time of the Maccabeans because you have this Israeli family who sets up their own dynasty, the Hasmonean dynasty, and is would have been threatened by anyone from the house and lineage of David who could claim by biological right the throne of Israel. Well, the Hasmonean dynasty passed on to Hycranus I, then to his son, and then finally to Hycranus II. Hycranus, as he ruled um, over Israel, um, aligned himself with Rome. He also forced all the Edomites, um, if you remember, they were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, the twin of Jacob, actually. He forced all the Edomites who were living in Israel to proselytize into Judaism. 
When these Edomites proselytized into Judaism, they did it half-heartedly. But one of these Edomites was a man named Herod. Herod became the right-hand man of Hercranus II, or the advisor. It was Herod who would go on behalf of Hycranus to Rome and broker the deals with the Caesars and the senators in Rome for the welfare of Hycranus's dynasty. When Hycranus died, because Rome recognized Herod, because Herod was very, very wealthy, they gave the dynasty of Israel to Herod. Now you've got Herod, as he's called Herod the Great, because of his building projects, because of his own entitlement. You've got this Edomite reigning over Israel, proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews. This usurper of the throne of Israel obviously is threatened by anyone who had a better and especially a biblical claim to the throne of Israel. Is it any wonder then that the seed of David was hiding out in the hills of Nazareth, hidden for a time, probably frightened for their lives, trying to live under the radar, maybe as carpenters and doing manual labor? This is what is happening. In this very atmosphere, God begins to manifest or bring to light the work that he has been doing in these dark 400 years known as intertestament times. God is working. His plan begins to come to light in the village of Nazareth. A young carpenter is informed that his betrothed wife is pregnant. I want to give you just a little background. I know there's a lot of history in this lesson. A little background on a betrothal. A betrothal was like a marriage before a marriage. There was actually a betrothal ceremony that was even more of a marriage than the wedding ceremony. The wedding ceremony was more like a modern day reception. So you would have what we have modern days, the wedding, and then months or weeks or days later, sometimes even years later, you would have the reception. And it was after the reception that the couple would begin then to cohabit together and um, have marital relationship together. But the betrothal period, the betrothal was a very important ceremony. And then we'd begin what was called the betrothal period. At the ceremony, a betrothal, the bride would be pledged to the groom and the groom to the bride. They would take wine and bread together, like we do in communion. And the groom would say to the bride, now you are consecrated to me as the vessels in the temple are consecrated to God. The groom would then pay all of the bride's past debts and assume or take over any of her further debts. Is it, there's, I love this ceremony because it just reminds me of what Jesus does when we accept him as Lord, how he pays off all of our debts, our sins, and then he assumes all our further debts. He forgives all our sins um, that we do even after coming to Christ. But the groom would pay all of the bride's past debts and assume any of her expenses or future debts. These vows were considered binding and could not be broken unless by death or divorce. 
after that time, the bride would go back into her father's house and just wait for her groom to come and claim her. Usually the groom would go um, where he could um, to his job, he would earn more money, or he would be building the house that he could bring the bride to. So you could actually become betrothed before you could afford to be married. And then during the betrothal period, the groom would be working hard to um, accumulate enough money to support his wife and his family after uh, the reception or the wedding ceremony. The groom could arrive at any time to take the bride to his house. After the wedding, the bride and groom would begin to live together. The wedding could be private or public, depending on the bride or groom. It could be a huge ceremony where a lot of guests were invited, or it could be that the groom would just take the bride into his home. Betrothals could last for years while the groom made preparation for the bride, building or preparing a house, making enough money to support them both. The bride would not usually see the groom until after the wedding or the reception. So there often would be an absence of the bride being able to see her groom during the betrothal period. Mary and Joseph have already celebrated the first ceremony, the betrothal. We're told in Matthew chapter 1 that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, which means they've already gone through this first ceremony. She's already consecrated to Joseph. They've taken the bread and the wine together. They are bound together, and nothing less than death or divorce can separate them. Mary is pure. She's a virgin. She is under the protection of Joseph. She is sacrosanct from other males. He has paid off her past debts. He has already assumed all her future debts. And the news reaches him that Mary is going to have a child. Um, another translation reads that Joseph is actually puzzled about this troubling news or these circumstances. He's concerned, but we're told that he doesn't want to make a public example of Mary. He doesn't want Mary humiliated or embarrassed or stoned as she would have been by Jewish law. And so he's considering putting her away privately or sending her away where nobody will know who she is or what's going on. When he goes to sleep that night, though, we're told that an angel comes to him in a dream and speaks to him. And the angel has a divine message. The angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The angel is reminding Joseph of the ancient lineage of David. I wonder how long it had been since Joseph had been referred to as a son of David. Perhaps it had been forgotten. Perhaps it had only been whispered in his ear, you are part of the son of David. Perhaps the books had been opened at a time and his father or his grandfather had shown him the name of Zerubbabel. And, and shown how that lineage went back all the way to David or maybe gone from Zerubbabel and traced each name, Azar and Abiud and Eliud and on down to Mathan, his great-grandpa, and to Joseph, his father, and then to uh, Jacob, his father, and then to Joseph himself. 
that he was a son of David, hidden and obscured, and then the book would go back covered or the scroll so that no one could see. And yet they held it in their heart, this secret identity of who they really, really were. This identity that they couldn't make public for fear of death or annihilation. But now it's revived. It's revived in power. It's revived by the angel of God in a dream. And the promise of God that there would never fail to sit on the throne of Israel, a descendant of David, is brought to the forefront. A name, a promise, long forgotten, emerges from obscurity and hiding. And Joseph is given instructions that he must obey. And at this point, Joseph is actually invited into the work of God. He will be an active participant in God's work. He will take Mary under his protection. And he will name the ultimate son of David. The one who will sit on the throne. Who is to be born. Because in those days, fathers were the ones who bequeathed the name to the child. Perhaps you remember the story in Luke 1 verses 62 through 63, where they're asking Zacharias, the ancient priest, who can't speak because of the angelic visitation he had, what the child who Elizabeth is about to bear should be named. And he asked for writing implements, and he writes down his name is John. And of course, at that point, he's able to speak. But it was the father's obligation to name the child. Joseph is to announce the name of the child which will also identify the mission of this child's life. As the angel says to Joseph in Matthew one twenty one, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph immediately obeys this heavenly calling. In fact, we're told when he was aroused from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife. He didn't hesitate. He didn't wait. At that moment, he completed the ceremony and took Mary into his house. Joseph obeyed the Lord with absolute diligence, honor, and respect. We're told in Matthew chapter 1 that he did not know Mary, have intimate relationship with her until after the child was born. He had absolute respect and honor for Mary. He took this edict from God so seriously. These instructions, being called into the plan of God, told to take Mary as his wife. Joseph took that so seriously. He honored, he respected Mary, and he protected her, and he became her guardian. And he honored the child that was in Mary's keeping. After this, we find out that adverse circumstances arise. Now, that's not what we would expect. Joseph has this angelic visitation in a dream. He's told of the the plans and the work that God is going to do. He's called into this work, but the next thing that happens is adverse circumstances or circumstances that make this hard to complete hard to fulfill, or almost 
seem contradictory to what God is telling him to do. Because it's during this time from Caesar Augustus that an edict is issued that affects the entire known world. Caesar wants to impose taxes on all the people he rules over. And in order to make sure that everyone is accounted for and he gets all the money he needs, he orders a census. He orders that every person, including the Jews, register according to their lineage. Suddenly, Joseph's lineage to the throne of David cannot be hidden. He must identify with his ancient grandfather, with the kingdom of David. He must go to Bethlehem because he is of the house and lineage of David. He must be registered. It must go on the Roman books who he is and who he's related to. It must be publicized. It must be seen. It must be officially recorded. Now, at this time, it would be reasonable for Joseph to leave Mary and Nazareth under the care and keeping of a midwife or women there. But Joseph will not leave his sacred charge. He will take Mary with him, even though it's 90 miles. And, and that's 90 miles that must be walked. We're not told about any donkey that Mary rode on, though that's possible. A cart is possible. But giving Given the impoverishment of Israel, given the fact that when it comes to the days of Mary's purity, they have to offer two turtle doves and not a lamb, Joseph probably didn't have enough money for a donkey. So it was probably quite a long walk to Bethlehem, 90 miles. We often romanticize the scene in Bethlehem, but in reality, it was chaotic, crowded, and oppressive. There's a hum of activity. This small village is overrun. There's no room at the inn. There are Roman-sanctioned tax collectors assessing and charging everyone. And nobody knew how great the charges would be. Joseph could not be sure if he had enough money or what would be taken from him. There is the ever-present threat of being arrested because he is of the lineage and house of David. Yet in this very oppressive and these exposing circumstances, Joseph is actually fulfilling the will and work of God because there's a prophecy in Micah 5 2 that says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Here in the overly crowded, unpretentious village of Bethlehem, the Savior. Christ the Lord is born. Mary wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in a manger in the midst of a stable because there's no rooms available in this inn. I think it's important right here to stop and realize that Joseph's obedience to God involved many risks. It involved a social risk because he's taking a pregnant virgin into his care and keeping. It involves a security risk because he has to publicly acknowledge his link to the dynasty of David, which could threaten his life. There's a financial risk because of the journey to Bethlehem, the taxes, the accommodations. Again, he is paying or underwriting um, Mary and for all of Mary's expenses too. There's a comfort risk. He's moving from a known land of Nazareth 
and from his trade as carpenter there, going to Bethlehem where he's not known, where he doesn't have a workshop. There's also a physical risk because he will be sought out by Herod and others to take the life of his young charge. Yet to Joseph, God's instructions are more important than any risks. And he goes to Bethlehem and oversees the birth of Jesus and names him Jesus. What follows is a series of confirmations and affirmations no doubt, Joseph at times had to wonder, is this really the, the will of God? This is the son of God? This is the son of David? This is the heir to the throne and promises of God? But wait, a stable? Not a palace? No room? Rejection already at birth? I don't think Joseph was aware that he was fulfilling prophecy or scripture. He was simply walking in obedience to God and doing the next or necessary thing. But in so doing, he was proving the validity and veracity of God's word. So in this little stable, God sends confirmation to Joseph. Alone with his wife and child, the shepherds come from the fields of Bethlehem. Like Joseph, they testify of seeing an angel. Like Joseph, they were instructed by an angel. Like Joseph, they obeyed the word of the angel, and they came to Bethlehem. How this word, this testimony of these angels, must have resonated with Joseph's soul. The shepherds talk about a company of angels that filled the sky and brightened the atmosphere. They tell of the first angel's words, do not be afraid. The very word that was spoken to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. So these this angel comes to these shepherds in this blinding, bright, glorious light and say, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. How this must have confirmed God's word to Joseph that Joseph was actually in the right place. It was the right time. It was the right set of circumstances. All these things that were hardships were actually what identified the Christ child, the savior of the world to these shepherds. It was the swaddling cloths. It was the manger. It was the birth in Bethlehem in a stable. The shepherds also spoke of the angels chorus as the sky was filled with a company of angels that shouted glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God was revealing his great work, his great glory to men on earth and letting men know it was a work of glory. It was a work of peace. It was a work of goodwill. It was a work of redemption through his only son. This confirmation came through these lower class shepherds to confirm to Joseph the work of God. But further confirmation awaited Joseph and Mary when they came to the temple to offer the sacrifices of dedication or purification for the birth of this boy. Their sacrifice, as we mentioned before, of two turtle doves shows the impoverished state of this young couple. Rather than offering a lamb, they offer 
the sacrifice of the poor. And at that moment, while they are submitting their offerings, Simeon, a godly man who was at the temple awaiting the salvation of the Lord, comes forward. And we're told that seeing Jesus, Luke chapter 2, he took up the child in his arms and began to bless the Lord. His praise states that God had kept his word and promise to this old man. There had been a personal word to Simeon that he would not die until he saw the salvation, the Yahshua, the Jesus of Israel. And he also states God's promise to the world, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And the promised one of Israel, their glory. Simeon then is followed by Anna, an 80-something-year-old widow who is known for her fastings and prayer, her godliness. And as she sees Simeon and the Christ child, she begins to give thanks to God and testifies of Jesus, this Christ child, to all who come to the temple seeking redemption or salvation or the plan or work of God. She was saying, it's here. I've seen it with my own eyes. This was her testimony. No doubt this is confirmation and affirmation to Joseph. Yes, this is my work. This is my plan. Come to light. But even more confirmation follows because we learn in Matthew chapter 2. While Joseph and Mary are living now in a house in Bethlehem where they have taken up residence, one day three kings from the east arrive and they tell of being guided by a star. They have followed an ancient prophecy and come seeking the one who has been born king of the Jews. There it is again, that promise, that work of God, that word. They have come in order to worship the king and to give him gifts of gold and frankincense, myrrh, gifts worthy of a king. They describe a meeting with King Herod when they lost sight of the star, how they stopped in Jerusalem to make inquiries, and how they found themselves in Herod's court, how Herod had feigned interest in their quest and then summoned the chief priests and the scribes to ask where the king of the Jews would be born. And how they had been informed by the chief priests and these scribes of an ancient prophecy found in Micah 5.2 that the Christ child, the king of the Jews, the ones whose rulership was from old but would go to everlasting, would be born in Bethlehem. Do you think this was news to Joseph? Do you think he recognized or realized how he was fulfilling God's word and work? I don't know. But here was confirmation. Later, the wise men are warned in a dream not to return to Herod's court, but to go back circumventing Jerusalem and not to give any information about the divine child to the king. Joseph at this point also receives a dream. This will be his second dream. And he's told to get up immediately and flee with the mother and child to Egypt. Joseph immediately obeys. After he leaves Bethlehem, Herod initiates a surprise attack on Bethlehem. After realizing that the wise men are not returning to his court, haunted by the thought of a true king of the Jews usurping his throne, 
Herod ordered the execution of all the children to and under in Bethlehem and nearby areas. Again, he is fulfilling the prophecy given by Jeremiah that Rachel, whose tomb, who had been buried by her husband, Jacob, in Bethlehem, is weeping over the descendants there. So Joseph flees immediately. We're told he rose up immediately again from sleep and took Mary and the child and fled to Egypt. While in Egypt, Joseph receives another dream. It's his third, that Herod is dead, as well as those who sought the life of Jesus. He is to return to Israel. And again, Joseph obeys the heavenly instructions and in doing so, fulfills a prophecy in Hosea, which states, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Upon returning to Israel, there is a fourth dream. In this dream, the angel directs Joseph to return to Nazareth. Again, Joseph obeys because now Joseph is fully immersed. His life has become all about fulfilling the word of God, being part of the work of God. God is also working in our lives. We're told in Philippians 2.13 that is God who works in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. And certainly that's what we see in the life of Joseph. But God's work is started in the darkness of circumstances, in the darkness of impossibilities. Everything is underground. It seems so dark. It seems like nothing can take place. And it's in these dark circumstances that adverse or puzzling circumstances wake us up to the ancient promises of God, to our personal need of God, that we can't do anything without him, to the need of the counsel of God. What are we supposed to do with the circumstances in our lives? Next comes divine instructions or directives. Where do we receive these directives, these instructions? We get them from the word of God. Because until we're obeying the instructions in the word of God, no further instructions will come. We must do the first things before the second things happen. Joseph had to obey the first dream before he received a second, third, or fourth dream or more instructions. The promises and divine instructions are in the scripture. And there we receive an inward sense of God's leading and God's calling. Joseph received a dream or a strong desire. So we, from the scriptures, receive a strong desire. A real dream arises, the work of God, his word speaking to us. Next comes obedience. So first it comes from circumstances that lead us to God, then divine instructions, and then obedience to those instructions. Again, it begins with general obedience to the word we have received. A word will not follow till we have received and begin to obey those words. There was a time lapse between Joseph's first and second dream. After this, edicts and circumstances beyond our control, even as the edict from Caesar came, these circumstances seem to be circumventing, postponing the work of God, often seem like distractions, but God is in the details. Even in taxes, displacement, vulnerability, vulnerability, 
and discomfort, God is working. Finally, God follows these instructions with affirmations and confirmations. And these affirmations and confirmations assure us that we are in the will of God. And they come from unlikely sources. I think I shared with you before that a man I knew received confirmations from license plates. These to Joseph were from the unlikely resources or sources of shepherds, testimonies and stories, old men, old women, widows, stars, kings, and dreams. But they all spoke God's word. They all confirmed God's word to Joseph. They were all testimonies of God's work and word. And they resonated with Joseph's spirit, just like these affirmations and confirmations will resonate with us the work that God has promised to us and to work in us. And all this leads to a full immersion to God's plans. We receive a greater sensitivity to God's leading. We are actively following his instructions and we are seeking the manifest glory of the Lord. I want you to know in your life, God is at work right now and God's work is being done right now in your life. Though it's covered, Though it seems obscured, we're told in Psalm 139, verse 15, that God skillfully works in secret places and records it in his book. Though some of his work is readily visible, some is unseen, some is waiting to be awakened by prayer. Perhaps you didn't realize that right now you are being awakened to the work of God. Maybe you're in dark circumstances or you've come out of dark circumstances. Maybe you're troubled by puzzling news. I want you to get ready for the work of God. He's calling you to be an active participant in his work. Prepare yourself. Arm yourself for the work of God. Don't be put off by your circumstances, taxes, or edicts, or things that seem to contradict or get you uncomfortable. This is all part of God's work in you with you, through you, by you. In fact, ask God to open your eyes and ears to the confirmations and affirmations he wants to give to you about his work in your life, through your life, with your life, by your life. So take this time to dedicate yourself fully to being an active participant in God's work. Again, God doesn't just want to work with you or for you. He wants to work in you. Great things await up ahead. The dawning of the day is coming. God is working right now, very actively, in all the circumstances of your life to bring about the glorious dawn and manifestation of Jesus in you. For it is God who works in you to will and to do of his own good pleasure. Are your days dark? Are your circumstances puzzling? Then you are getting ready for exciting times and being called to be an active participant in the work of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you work in the darkness to bring about the day. Lord, that these days are not leading to greater darkness, but every night must give way to the morning, that every moon must give way to the sun, that you are going to manifest yourself in the dark um, by the light, 
that you will bring about your greatest work. Lord, we lift our hands to you right now. We say, Lord, here I am. Let me be a participant in your work like Joseph. Let me obey your instructions. Like Joseph, let me hear your word. Let me see your work. Let me receive your confirmation and your affirmation. Lord, let me fully immerse myself in all that you are doing. Don't let me stand on the sidelines, Lord, but let me have a part and a place in this glorious work that you want to do in these last days. Lord, we lift up our hands and say, here we are. Use us. Work in us. Work through us. Work with us. Work by us. Your glorious work. We ask this in the almighty, powerful name of Jesus. Bring to light the glory of your Son. And may we be a participant in bringing Jesus out into the light and sight of all men. In Jesus' name, amen.